Welcome to the What, How, Why podcast, where we try and answer the question, how have our guests got to where they are today? My guest today is TV and film producer Charlie Hansen. He's won Golden Globes and BAFTAs, and most recently is a producer on Ricky Gervais' Netflix show Afterlife. We get talking about what an executive producer actually does, and he gives his advice to people looking to make it in the creative space of acting, writing or directing. As always, I hope you find it useful. Hi, uh, my name is Charlie Hansen and I'm a producer, one-time theatre director and then a television director and producer. My career spans about 30 years of different types of theatre and TV shows and I'm currently producing TV and film yeah, and I guess my first question for you, um, as a complete uh, novice outside of this, is what does a producer actually do? It's a good question, because there are different types of producers, and I get this asked all the time, even by people <laughs> in the industry, like actors who are not always sure or want to maybe produce themselves, but they don't quite know what it entails. Um, I'm a creative producer, and the creative producer is someone who starts with the creative idea, and usually that will be a writer will come to me with an idea or I will read a script by a writer and we start with a script and then the next stage is we develop that script and when we think it's ready to make we look for a director. Sometimes the director comes in as part of the development process and sometimes the director is the same person as the writer. Um, but basically I work with the writer-director to develop a script in order to sell it to a network. That could be the BBC, Channel 4, Netflix, or any number of different outlets. And then the next, once we sell it and we're gonna make it, my role is to bring in a team of people, heads of department to work with me and the director to make the best possible show. And the key there is to pick the right people. Mm. <laughs> and um, people that can work well together, complement each other, different levels of experience, but obviously the more experience, the better. And again, casting is the, the final you know, part of it, getting the right actors to play the roles. And you kind of bring all that together. And that's what a creative producer does. There are other producers, there's a line producer, which I don't do, but a line producer prepares the budget um, and hires all the people, as we call it in the business, below the line. So yep. if you look at a budget, you have above the line talent, and that would be the writer, director, producer, and below the line will be all the heads of department and the crew. And uh, so that's why they're called a line producer. They kind of hire everybody below the line, so to speak. And then you have executive producers, and an executive producer could be a representative of the finance company or the broadcaster who are kind of keeping an eye on the production but they're not there every day on a you know producing it on a day-to-day -day basis so you have different tiers of producers sure so if to summarize all that then i guess you guys take it at a very early stage then so even before it's been taken on by uh netflix with bbc or such you're already working with the script and then you also sell it to the 
um, to the broadcasters and then work on casting and the actual project itself. So it's yeah. sort of a, it's a, it's really very um, vertical, I guess. You you're in there for the whole process from the very beginning and to the very end when you actually deliver the program to the broadcaster. Um, there can be sections to that when you could be a producer for hire, where you could have a situation where the BBC or Channel 4 have developed a project with a company and a team, and then they need a producer. I mean, it's unusual, but sometimes a producer that's developed a project leaves to go and work on something else, and by the time they commission the programme, is not available anymore. So you, occasionally you might just get hired to come uh -huh. in and produce a program that someone else has already developed. But it's I don't really do that myself. I probably have done it in my early career, but now I tend to start, you know, the early stages and take it all the way through. I see. Okay. And is there any any particular project that you're particularly proud of? Um, I guess there are a couple of projects that I've done with Ricky Gervais. Uh, well, the first one with Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant was called Extras, which I think we started working on in 2004-05, um, which was a brand new project after they'd done The Office. Yeah. And um, so I kind of saw that through from the very beginning. We did three, well, two series and a special for the BBC and HBO, and that was one of the most fun things I did as well as one of the most successful and I guess Afterlife, which I'm currently doing, um, about to go into the third season of Afterlife for Netflix with Ricky Gervais as writer and director, is something that I'm proud of in terms of it's, you know, it's gone really well. We've got a fantastic cast. And then um, on a different side, I work with a writer-director called Amma Asante, who's a filmmaker. And I did actually produce her very first TV series and went on to produce her first feature film and her most recent feature film. So I'm kind of proud of the work I've done with her because I kind of, in her case, worked with someone who started as a, a writer who went on to direct and has now become an international success. Mm. That's phenomenal, yeah. And what's the sort of difference then between TV production and movie production? And I guess also this kind of new blend of Netflix production? Yeah, um, in the early days, and it's still to a certain extent the same, with a TV production, you tend to get the money from one source, um, and they, you know, the TV broadcast will pay for all of it. There may be a slight deficit that you have to make up with a sales agent sort of guaranteeing sales to other countries up the budget, but more or less you get all the money provided and it's paid either up front or in installments, so you, you don't have any cash flow problems. With a film, it's very different. With an independent film, you do, I spend a lot more time going around different, not just um, broadcasters, because you can, you can sell a film to BBC Films and Channel Film 4 for ultimate sort of UK television, but you've got to get the people that are going to distribute it in cinemas, and finances, and in some cases, there are companies that specialize in investing money, and that it's very much a business decision. So, on a film, you could have five different financiers who are contributing to the making of a movie, and that makes life a bit more complicated. Mm, okay.
takes a bit longer to do as well from a producer's point of view. Right. And I'd like to talk a bit now about how you first got into all this business. Yeah. Um, well, I, I guess it was one of those things that I kind of, I knew at a very early age, I think I was about 13 when I wanted to become a director. I wasn't interested in acting. I started making little short films at home on my father's eight millimeter camera. So I kind of had got the urge <laughs> to make things. Um, and then at school, I directed plays, school plays and, you know, um, productions. I did drama at school and that kind of gave me the bug to become a theatre director at any rate. Um, my initial ambition had been to be a film director, but then I didn't have all the, you know, facilities and stuff to make a film. So I started by being a theatre director and that's how I started my career. I went to Manchester University, did a drama degree there. The thing is, if you know you want to direct or produce at an early age and you kind of, you can then pick where you go to study. Yeah. Uh, so I had that advantage. And what I found was the majority of people studying drama at Manchester University wanted to be actors. Um, they, there were only two of us in my year who wanted to direct. And therefore you get the opportunity to direct a lot of talented young people of your own generation who want to act. Oh, of course. Um, yeah. <laughs> so it was a perfect sort of experiment, really, for three years where I had all this talent at my disposal wanting to be in plays. So it gave me the opportunity to produce and, well, direct plays uh, ah. without having to pay money for it. I wonder, is there, is, do you still think that drama is the best degree to pursue if you want to become a producer? Or is there something more directly applicable? Not as a producer. I mean, I think drama helped me because I wanted to be a director. Yeah. And my early career was as directing. Obviously, my directing career has sort of informed the type of producer I am because my experience was working with writers and actors early in my career. And I worked with a lot of new writers. And by working with new writers, you're there when they come up with a new idea for a TV series or a film. Um, so that's been why I'm, I'm probably considered a writer's producer because I've you know come that path yeah but there are producers who can come into it from the camera side of it or technical side you know and first assistant directing who come in doing more sort of administrative roles and perhaps finance even you know you can become a producer because you're good at putting financial packages together but you still need to have an artistic uh, inclination. There's no point in just being someone that can put budgets together and money if you don't have the artistic taste. flair. Of course. Yeah, you've got to have flair and taste and recognize talent when you see it. I think is the key. Mm. And on on that note of recognizing talents, uh, what's your process when you see a script come through? Uh, to one, how do you sort of go through it and decide whether or not it's worth pursuing? Well, you know, when I started out, I used to think, well, I like this script, but it, I was never that confident to say, oh, because I like it, everyone's going to like it. Yeah. As you get older and more experienced, and you, I, I still have my personal taste and my instincts, and when I like something, I kind of hope that other people around me are going to like it too. 
And so even now, you know, I read new scripts, and particularly during COVID, I've read quite a few new scripts. But I have um, an assistant producer who's worked with me on Afterlife who works in development, and I give her scripts to read. If I like a script, I'll give it to her to read, and I've got a reader who's quite new in the industry. And what I've been finding is that they like the scripts really. You know, if it's a good script, it's a good script. And if it's a bad script, they spot it too. And we, we have that in common. Um, so either I just pick very good people with like-minded taste or, you know, I think ultimately if, if a script works and you're held by the story and it works all the way through, yeah, um, you know, the character's interest you, it's going to be the same for, for most people. Most people will recognize a good script. Okay, so you guys don't do a sort of sit-down focus group and get a group of people in, try and find out whether or not the script will work in that kind of formal well, we, marketing setting? Not so much that. What we do do occasionally is do a reading of a script where we bring in actors and we read the script aloud. We get actors to read the script aloud and we sit and watch and we have other people in the room kind of taking notes. And that's as much for the writer as well because often from that you learn things that work in a script or don't work and the writer will go away and do another draft. Um, right. and, it, and even in Afterlife with Ricky Gervais, Ricky will write a script that may not be totally finished, but it's sort of two thirds of the way there. And we'll bring in actors to read certain scenes and see how it goes. And from that, he'll then go away after discussion and write up a fuller, more detailed script and add in things if he thinks something happened that worked well. I mean, that particularly with comedy is sometimes in a rehearsal workshop, you can find things that extra things that might be funny if you explore it a bit further. Absolutely. It, with a drama, you don't really do so much of that, but, um, but you probably, you know, everyone would have heard of people that do improvisation and workshops. Well, there's an element of that in the early stages of developing a script and sometimes it can be improvisation but sometimes it's just reading the script aloud and hearing what people think of it mm. just just uh, circling back quickly uh, on your uni days what was your do you remember your first job after you graduated uh, from manchester i do actually i got i applied for a job that i saw in i think the guardian media guardian media which was what you got on a Monday. Mm -hmm. And I got a job as the travelling theatre director for Lincolnshire and Humberside Arts. So anybody listening to this that lives up there, what they had in that area, they had local arts association, I guess, funded by the Arts Council. But it was quite a wide part of the country, you know, very spread out. They didn't have many professional theatres. They did have one at Lincoln Theatre Royal, they had one in Hull, but basically there were a lot of amateur theatre groups in that part of the world. And so they employed a professional theatre director right. to go around. Um, I literally would drive around the county <laughs> a different night in a different town directing a local amateur dramatic group. Which was, well, was, was it glamorous? It was well, a lot of driving, I mean, uh -huh. a lot of driving on very flat and often foggy roads, but it was fun. I mean, it was my first job out of university. I met some really fantastic people. I mean, one of the groups was the Scunthorpe Civic Players, and a lot of them worked in the steelworks, which um, was 
the main part of Stuntorp in those days. I mean, of course, yeah, it's sort of on the decline now. But I mean, they they had a really strong acting group in their amateur dramatic. So I kind of met people from all walks of life that just like doing theatre. Um, so that was fun. Yeah, I, I did that for nine months and did about four kind of classic plays with with those groups. And then I was fortunate that I applied to the Royal Court and I got a job as an assistant director at the Royal Court in London. So I kind of came straight down to that. Oh, and do you think that was your first big break, so to say? Yes, it was, because the thing about the Royal Court is it's a nationally recognised theatre for new writing. So immediately within my, you know, I was there for about two, two and a half years, I got to work with a lot of prominent writers of the time and some of those are people I went on to work with, you know, over the years, the, the ensuing years. And in one case, I, you know, went from directing his plays in theatre to producing his work on television. So yes, it was a, that was my first break, I guess. And what what do you think it was that made you successful in getting that position? I guess having had was it nine months' experience out of university? Uh, I think if anything, it was probably my experience at university and certainly saw some of the productions. I mean, nobody, unfortunately, even though I had a lot of fun and I learned a lot, it was like an apprenticeship, my time in Lincolnshire and Humberside in terms of, you know, getting things done quickly with groups of actors. But no one came to see that work. You know, no one from other theatres travelled up to look at that work. Whereas when I was at university, I was able to get people to see my work. And so it was my reputation from things I directed at university that helped get me into the Royal Court. Fantastic. And do you think, would you give that same advice to students today? Well, I think today it's slightly different in the sense that um, I think you just have to get notice. I mean, you have to get a product. Yes, you certainly have to get people to see your productions, whether you're doing it in a pub theatre in London, whether you're doing it in a small studio theatre in Reading, Oxford, you know, wherever you happen to be, the key is to get people who have experience, who maybe got influence, to see your work. Um, it's hard because you've got to persuade them to come out to go to the theatre. Mm. Um, but, you know, that is the key to it get people to see your work and put on showcases. And in the same in film and TV, I guess now the way forward is to make a short film. It can be as short as three minutes, up to 12 minutes, you know, but if you make a short film and you do it well, that becomes your calling card and can get you in to meet people. I see. And did you? And what was the first short film you did? I didn't, actually. I went straight from being a theatre director to being talent spotted by a TV person and went straight into making television. But I have worked, funny enough, I didn't make my first short film till about six years ago and I okay. made and I made another one a couple of years ago not actually you know they weren't really for my benefit they were because they were up-and-coming young writer directors who I thought had written something really special and had talent so I produced their work in order to give them a foot in the door okay and I wanted to ask as well what was were there any particular turning points where you made either a big mistake or had a great success? Uh, any lessons you learnt from them? Well, I'd say the turning point 
was for me being spotted because doing theatre I was doing drama it was fairly serious plays but you know there was humour they were entertaining and what happened I got headhunted by a head of comedy at ITV and that was the turning point because I didn't realise you know that by going in and doing a comedy in TV that was going to change my career so I was sort of headhunted to do a comedy and then that became a hit and yeah. that led to me being offered other comedies so I now have a dual track you know I do quite a, I'm mostly known my reputation is for comedy partly because I've done a lot of comedies that have been hits but also more recently because I work with Ricky Gervais who's kind of well known in the comedy world but I'd say something like Afterlife is is very much comedy drama it's a mix of the two but um, parallel to that I've kind of kept on my kind of drama credentials by working with Amara Santi and a few other people on pure drama which isn't necessarily considered comedy but that was a turning point for me that I wasn't expecting it just mm. took me on that path and that's what happens you know a lot of the thing about this business is a lot of it is who you end up working with which writers and which colleagues and I think as a young student I'd give advice to anyone that wants to go down the creative path whether you want to be an actor a writer a director or a producer or even a set designer it's all about finding contemporaries at college or university doesn't really matter what level it is it could even be in your local community so the people who are like-minded and talented and banding together and creating something and I think it's that sort of sense of um rising together as a team but a team that complements each other that kind of leads you forward and then that continues through life because you know it was very random that I met Ricky Gervais and he asked <laughs> me to do his next show and and that still happens a lot of things become random as to who you you meet in your career obviously now I've been doing it for long enough that people you know just approach me because they know of me and they go to my agent and ask me if I'll do something with them but in the early days it was all about finding people who's who you appreciated their talent whether that be an actor or a writer in my case um, I was looking for people I could work with are there any contemporaries right now in terms of writers actors or producers you think are doing a phenomenal job Ooh, that's difficult because um, there are. I mean, there are the people who, who write a TV series called Succession, which is on, what's it on? Uh, I think it was on Sky. It's, a, it's actually made in, in America, but it's sort of yeah. about the Murdoch Empire. But that's a phenomenally successful show, which actually is written and directed by mainly British talent. Okay. Who started out here on a show, uh, various shows, writing different comedy shows. They came together, a lot of them, to work on the thick of it and then reap some of the writers. And the main writer also wrote the Peep Show. Wrote Peep show. So they're all people that had pedigrees in this country and banded together and, you know, one of them had an idea for a great show, which is Succession. So that's, a, I'd say, a team of people that have come together and then they've gone and done a big show in America that's a massive hit. So it can work in different at different times, different eras. I mean, there are newer people now doing shows like 
um, end of the effing world. I'm being careful not to say the word. <laughs> I don't know who's listening for your viewers, but uh, um, which was on Channel 4 Netflix. And that's yeah. got quite a good group of young writers and directors, or one writer, one writer, but you know, they've had good young directors, a brilliant young cast, and it's you know, a massive hit. So I think, you know, there are people, and it, it's all, it's not, it's a lot of it is luck, but obviously you've got to have the talent, but sometimes you can be really talented and go a long time before you find the right vehicle for your talent. So it's always great to see, you know, a young cast get together in a really successful show and um, rise through that. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, I'm going to move on now and ask some of the questions our students have sent in to us. Uh, so the first one was, what's the hardest project you've worked on and why was it so challenging? Gosh, okay, probably the hardest one was the last film that I did by Amara Santi called Where Hands Touch. Right. And, and it was challenging because it, a, it took us from her having the idea and us developing the script. We started that after her first film in 2005, 2006. We had the script ready in 2008. Is that and, um, and is that ordinary to have a two-year gap? Uh, well, it took two years. She was touring with her first film. You know, the whole development process was getting it ready over two years, and we were ready to make it in 2008. And then there was the bank, the financial crisis that came along. Of course, yeah. And we lost the finance, so it got stalled. And then both she and I both did other projects in those years from 2008 through to 2016. So an eight year period went by where both of us did other projects. In her case, she made two other films, one called Belle and one called A United Kingdom. And then we came together in 2016 and finally got the money together to make it. Uh, but, it, and you know, that, took a lot of work <laughs> and it dragged on for a long time and it was just the two of us kind of determined that we were going to make this film the way we got it made was by having really talented set designers and DOP you know the team that we built and I think that the next question kind of follows on for that as well is how is uh, the industry changing and how can you get ahead of the curve okay well the the biggest change I would say over my time has been all the social media outlets. Uh, one example during COVID, well, there are a couple of during COVID that I've been aware of. There's um, Sarah Cooper, an American, started putting out short TikTok and, and slightly longer videos of her miming to Donald Trump's speeches. Yeah. And, and they caught on and beca became massive hits and, you know, loads of big stars saw them and retweeted them and commented and now she's got her own show for Netflix and some another show for NBC so she's kind of you know yeah so, so leveraging so social media seems to be yeah. the way to probably get ahead of the curve right now it is you, if you get noticed um somehow you have to find ways of getting your talent seen if you're an actor or performer mm. uh, and if you're a writer you've got to get somehow people to read your stuff so what was the traditional way of getting seen before social media was the medium 
Well, the, the traditional way was to either do a showcase in a theatre where you'd invite people to come and see you present something in a theatre. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, cost money because you'd have to pay to hire a venue and send out invites. And then, of course, not everyone would turn up on that one day you wanted them to come. So you probably have to film it so you could have a record of it to give to people who couldn't be bothered to turn up on the night. Yeah. Um, and, and similarly, you know, as I said before, the, there's all, the short film has always been there for people um, to make a short film to show what they're capable of. But um, nowadays, with you know, everyone can make a short film with their phone. You know, you don't have to hire massive cameras and equipment. Of course. So I think it, you know, technology is more accessible to people. But on, that's the plus side. And on the negative side, everybody can do it. So there's probably more competition. Of, absolutely. They can do it. Uh, the third question we got in was, what does success look like for a producer? Um, is it awards or is it critics' reviews? Oh, well, that's... That's a very difficult question. I mean, obviously, we like to win awards, but that's not any, you know, that's just part of it. Yeah. Uh, because often they're judged by the public or your peers. Um, you like to get good reviews. And, you know, people say, oh, I don't read reviews, but they soon know if they're getting bad reviews. But ultimately, it's sort of, you get a general sense if people are watching your work. Mm. And sometimes you can get bad reviews, but everybody loves what you're doing, you know, people are watching it, the public like it, but you don't get the reviews. So it's across, I mean, the ideal would be to get great reviews and have a hit. <laughs> of course. Watches it, you know, that would be the ideal. But I guess my variant of the question is sort of, can you be an award-winning producer who's not getting great reviews? Or what's more important if you want to get work in the future? Is it that you've got Golden Globes and a lot or is it that you've been producing just great content that's been critically reviewed very well? Um, that's a tricky one. I think ultimately reviews don't count for enough. I mean, it, the thing about awards, you know, I often say, you know, for example, um, this year with COVID, I mean, the awards aren't happening. I mean, they are happening online, and but there are no award ceremonies. There's no, none of the glamour of winning an award. Yeah. But I say to people, well, actually, you know, sometimes it's not going and being seen picking up the award that counts because that's done over in a flash. You might have a good party afterwards, but that's literally all it means. But having it on your CV for the rest of your career that you won a Golden Globe. Yeah. It means, means whenever everything. your agent sends out something, it says, you know, BAFTA winning, Golden Globe winning, da 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 da. So that. That's where it counts, you know. I mean, has that, have you had that experience? Have there been certain awards you've received that you think that's changed the way that other people look at you and get the kind of opportunities you get? It's hard to say, really, because I think I tend to think that I get the work through my reputation, you know, that people see my work. I mean, Ricky, for example, asked me to do something because I worked with Richard Ayuardi on a series years ago and that people liked yeah and that's you know he'd heard it was good i hadn't won really any awards at that point um but yeah i guess probably americans look at it more and are impressed that i won baftas and a golden globe i don't know that people in this country they just know me as who i am 
if they've worked with me or met me. <laughs> I see, I see. Okay, so I guess it's a cultural thing. Yeah. Um, I'll quickly jump on to our last question, uh, which is what does your typical nine to five look like if it even is a nine to five? Uh, right, that's, it isn't really. And it's, it's very, um, so you can have your period when you're in development and that by development, that's working on ideas and scripts for future production. And that can be, um, I'd say, for some reason, our industry tends to be more like 10 till seven. 10 till right. 6 or 7 and and sometimes you might work later because you're having to do phone calls to America because a lot of agents over there you don't really start having calls with America till after 5 p.m. Um, so you might you know but you don't do that every day so I guess 10 to 6 or 7 is the norm when you're in development um, but then when you're in production you have to get up really early because you people tend to start filming as early as 8 a.m. on set. So, you know, I might have to get up at 6 to travel to a studio or a location and be there at half 7 and have breakfast and then get on set at half 8 and we're already filming. And what kind of work would you do during, in sort of when it's in the production phase? In the production phase, I sit and I get there you know, usually go and say hello to people, check everybody. If there are new actors that have arrived that day, check that they're okay, that they look okay, that they're wearing the right costumes, etc. Yeah. Um, and then, and you go, if it's a new set, you might go and look at the set. But otherwise, you're literally there. I sit at the monitor, and as we start filming, um, you know, we rehearse, and then we start doing takes, and I watch playback, really, on, on the side of the set. I watch the monitor. Uh-huh. From, from about whatever it is, 8.30 in the morning through to lunchtime. We have an hour's lunch uh, and then we carry on in the afternoon through till about 6. Um, sometimes, you know, that can vary because if you're doing a, a night shoot, you might not start till 5 in the afternoon and work till 5 in the morning if you're filming at night. And we have what's called a split days where you do from 2 p.m. till midnight. Right, that's okay. where you start and do some scenes in daylight and then you go into, you wait till it gets dark. You don't need a full night, but you need at least four hours of darkness. I see. So what, what I'm kind of getting then is that there's no typical day, so to say, and, and it also depends upon whether in production or in the pre-phase where you're looking through the scripts, um, the kind of hours you're working and the kind of work you're doing as well. No, it changes all the time. That's part of the fun of this particular type of job that, it, it's different all the time. I mean, when you're in production, I'm watching the filming happening. In theory, it should all go smoothly because I've put in all the work and everyone else is doing the work and I just sit there and watch it and everything goes well. But sometimes, you know, the weather's not good or something goes wrong. You know, there's a few technical faults and you get behind. So you then have to, you know, on certain days, you may have to make a decision what are we going to do? Are we going to go into overtime or are we going to cut something to make make up time? You know, you have to deal with sort of mini crises that mm-hmm. might pop up when you're in production because you've got... And firefight those as well, yeah. Yeah, you've got lots of people on set. You might have 70 people on set. So you can't afford to just go on and on doing it till, till it's done mm-hmm. if it's taking people into lots of overtime. Sure. And... Just to sign off, do you have any advice you'd give someone 
looking to get into the industry right now? Well, I'd say the two things. One is you really have to want to do it. You know, you really have to think, do I want to put myself through some of the insecurities that this industry has? Um, but on the whole, the people who want to become an actor, writer, director in the creative industries, they are determined because they, you know, they feel they've got talent that they want to exploit. So in that case, if you decide you definitely want to do it, then you have to be persistent. You have to be prepared that people are going to say no, and you're going to get lots of no's before you get a yes. Um, and it's all about putting yourself out there, being seen by people, being recognised by people. And you know there'll be people that, if you're a writer, there'll be lots of people who don't like your script who'll say no, and then someone who will like it, and that yes will be the breaking point. So you've mm. just got to be patient until you get the yes. Patient and determined. Yeah, patience and determination. I think that's a great note to end up to sign off on as well. Great. Well, thank you very much, Rick. It's been an interesting chat and fun. Absolutely. I've learned so much as well, and I hope the listeners have too. Great. And as you know, you and I met randomly, and you asked me to do this. So that's. <laughs> it goes that's to show. <laughs> it, yeah, it does go show. Sometimes it's a bit of luck and the right place, right time, and yeah. uh, things, can, things can align. Great. Well, all the best with it. And I hope those of you listening, you know have a lot of luck to go with your determination and talent.